2: Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This episode of Spaces Podcast is supported by CTO Landscape Architecture. You'll hear more about them later on in the show.
0: I mean, it was clear to me
2: that we were, you know, we were seeing the data in 2006.
0: It, to me, it was crystal clear that. You know, CO two levels in the atmosphere were rising rapidly and increasing every year, and the temperature was rising rapidly. Uh, you had you know record temperatures year year after year, and you know most of the hottest years on record had been in the previous ten years. So it was obvious to me at the time. Now, leaping forward in twenty twenty one, the hottest seven years in, on record have been in the past seven years. So every year. In my lifetime, it has been among the hottest years. And every decade I've been alive have been the hottest decades. And it it saddened me that the thought that we were going to have children and they were going to grow up in a world where the year they were born might have been the coolest year that they'll ever live.
2: This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. We're back for season five. For those that have been listening along, welcome back. I told you we wouldn't be on as long of a break, so thank you for hanging with us. And for those that are joining us for the first time, thanks for hanging out with us. In this episode, we're going to discuss net zero communities, highlighting a new community development called Viridian at County Farm. Viridian is a unique 13.59 acre property located in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's targeted to be one of the nation's first mixed income net zero energy communities. They're targeting living building challenge net zero energy on their community building and creating one of the nation's first living community challenge master plans. It will be a 100% all electric development powered by solar with no gas lines or combustion appliances of any kind. In addition to design and engineering concepts around net zero buildings and community this conversation will also be particularly enlightening for anyone that's interested in development as we touch on various phases of development like submitting a proposal for purchasing land early design inspiration and process unique funding sources like environmental social governance or esg funds and so much more I'm joined in this episode by my co-host Michelle as we have an inspiring conversation with the developer Matt Grokoff, founder of Thrive Collaborative, discussing Viridian at County Farm and how we can and should all strive for a more sustainable future. Michelle, we are back. Um, t- in today's episode, we have a Great conversation coming up. Uh, Really looking forward to this. This came across my radar. Um, I don't even know. I think it was LinkedIn. I saw this cool rendering of this community that's being developed. And I was like, oh, I got to reach out and see if we can get them on the show. And simultaneously, I have been seeing a lot of different articles about, you know, our generation of millennials and how our living situation one article I saw said that 60% of us don't want to live in suburban-style communities, and then uh, no, I saw another one that said 48% of us are living in uh, suburban-style communities, and then I saw this community being developed, and I was like, I want to live there. <laughs> uh, it's neither. It's neither of those, but it's super fascinating project. So wanted to uh, to get them on. So, today's guest is a founder of Thrive Collaborative and considered one of the world's net zero energy building leaders. Green Building Elements magazine called him the proven zero energy master. Please help me welcome Matthew Grokoff. <clears throat> Matthew, thank you for joining us.
0: <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show. I tell you, that's that's really one of the greatest compliments that uh, he said. I want to live there because we we keep hearing that from people like um, uh, of of all kinds. There are people who are who are elderly and retiring. There are people who are are uh, uh, young couples just about to have their first children moving here from California. There's there's young millennials. There's people coming right out of college, and every one of them are just saying it's like I, you know I, I I see myself there. And um, so that's the greatest compliment we can have. And you talk about those renderings that you saw. It's, you know, that's the reason we did those pretty pictures inspiring (laughs) people for what this future can look like. Yeah. Part of the problem is everybody lacks imagination about what these net zero targets look like. And when you just explained to them that, uh, can we swear on the show, it's going to (laughs) be beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: So just to back up, uh, the the community that you're developing is called Viridian at County Farm. First, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself um, and then tell us a little bit about Viridian?
0: (laughs) About myself. I I know nothing about myself. (laughs) Um, My my wife's a therapist. That's what I I, I married her for the free therapy to discover (laughs) that very question. Um, (laughs) But uh, no, I I, I grew up in Georgia uh, in a suburban neighborhood. Outside of Atlanta, uh, it was very rural at the time. Neighbors had horses. Across the street from us was the Brook Farm, right? This old man who was in his 80s at the time didn't have a telephone. Um, He had electricity, There was no television, nothing in this guy's house. And he'd been farming this land forever and cows and they would wander and break through the fence and there'd be pigs and stuff walking through our neighborhood, through this suburban neighborhood. And we would go down, we'd play in the creek, and, and, uh, and, and I was, you know, introduced to nature in this way, right? There was this gorgeous creek, there was this farm across the street, and yet we had the privilege of of, of growing up in this safe neighborhood where you could bike down the street, and, uh, and it, was a, it was a child's paradise. But as, as I was growing up there, you just started seeing this rapid destruction. You know, by the time I was in high school, that farm across the street became a condominium complex called Brook Farm, the road by our house became four lanes, and and became Mount Vernon Highway, and and bit by bit, you just kept seeing this 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 the suburbanization of of Atlanta, and people moving out of the city and further and further out and just growing beyond bounds, to the point where the suburbs weren't even nice anymore. You <laughs> can, right? You could what the reason you moved there was for freedom and space, and what you ended up with was pollution and traffic and loneliness and. Years later, I ended up, um, you know, in in law school, um, really being passionate about the environment, having read uh, Paul Hawkins book in the early 90s and um, really remembering the speeches in Congress in the late 80s about climate crisis and uh, saying, well, that's a a really sucky future. And when you saw there were people saying, hey, we, we can stop this and we can have a very different kind of future. and This is what it would look like. And to me, that was something that was really beautiful and profound. And so after law school, I started getting offered jobs in, um, you know, for the the EPA, uh, a job in Pascagoula, Mississippi with a tort lawyer who was suing a big paper company. And and I realized, it's like, wait a minute. So if we win this lawsuit, we find the paper company for having already polluted farmland and made toxic, you know, thousands of acres of farmland and the Pascagoula River. And if I go to work for the EPA, I'm slapping people who go below this margin of the law. So if they are obeying the law, anything less would be illegal. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that, that's not really our goal. We want to try to promote something that's thriving. And so I really struggled for a long time seeing like, where, where is that path? And then eventually, I was working in media at the time after, after law school and in California and thinking that we could um, look to ways to educate and entertain through media. And that was really difficult in the early two thousands. Um, there was, there was no, there was no YouTube. There was no zero VOC paint, right? All paint smelled like hell. Um, so you you couldn't have a TV show where you were advertising that. So, uh, flash forward, my, my wife came to grad school here at university of Michigan, go blue. And, um, uh, and we, uh, ended up uh, staying here for a few years deciding that, uh, uh, just before 2008 was a great time to buy a house, right? So <laughs> peak of the housing market, and we uh, bought an old folk Victorian from 1901 uh, that was um, had no insulation whatsoever. Uh, it was balloon framing, had a layer of newspaper in the attic dated 1901. There was a Mueller Climatrol furnace in the basement. Photographs of the old outhouse in the backyard, and you know lead paint, asbestos siding, gas lawnmower in the shed, you know everything you can imagine. Or, you know, the perfectly sustainable house, but had this incredible South facing roof. And so we took it on ourselves and, and, because we were idiots, not engineers or architects or building science experts and said, we're going to make this house net zero.
2: Hmm.
0: In 2006, I met um, Jason McLennan, the founder of the living building challenge at, uh, at a green building conference. And we said, you know, that's what we're going to do. We're going to make this a living building challenge house. And really without even questioning whether it was possible, it was like, well, what does that take? And really it was very simple. And that was, let's get rid of the gas because I can't power this house with renewable energy if it has gas. Mm-hmm. So we uh, bought one of the early induction cooktops from uh, uh, Whirlpool actually gave it to us. Uh, we got uh, heat pump water heaters, we got geothermal. We insulated the house as much as we could to historic preservation standards, by the way, so we couldn't make the walls any bigger.
2: Yeah. So
0: we have a very, very low level of insulation in the house, but um, but still by electrifying everything, and then in 2010, putting solar panels up on the roof, maximizing the roof space as much as we could, we were able to achieve net zero energy. We were certified as one of the first net zero homes and the first in historic district in 2014. And, uh, and that kind of uh, set me on the path to where we are now. Yeah.
1: I want to make sure I, I understood. Did you, the decision to turn your 1901 home into a net zero, was that just purely because I mean, you just kind of had a passion and said, hey, this this seems like a fun idea, or?
0: No, it didn't seem fun at all. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, (laughs) It seemed a necessity. I I mean, it was clear to me that we were, you know, we were seeing the data in 2006. To me, it was crystal clear that, you know, CO2 levels in the atmosphere were rising rapidly and increasing every year, and the temperature was rising rapidly. Uh, you had, you know, record temperatures year, year after year. And, you know, most of the hottest years on record had been in the previous 10 years. So it was obvious to me at the time. Now, leaping forward in 2021, the hottest seven years on record have been in the past seven years. So every year in my lifetime, it has been among the hottest years. And every decade I've been alive have been the hottest decades and it, it saddened me that the thought that we were going to have children and they were going to grow up in a world where the year they were born might have been the coolest year that they'll ever live. And I saw the consequences of that. Um, and again, it was obvious to me as I was seeing folks and had the privilege of meeting um, Hank Pollock, uh, Henry Pollock, who was one of the scientists on the um, IPCC Commission on Climate Change. He was a professor here at the university. He wrote a book called uh, World Without Ice. Um, he was one of the world's leading ice scientists. And what he saw was going out on the Great Lakes in wintertime and seeing no ice at times when historically it had already been ice. Antarctica, uh, the Arctic, uh, glacier, glacial mountaintops, everywhere in the world, ice was diminishing. And that was just one data point. So to me, looking at this house and saying, oh, this is it. I mean, we we're, we're, we don't have kids yet. We can renovate this house ourselves. I can just make it all electric. Uh, I, I knew which products to, 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 to purchase, researched it, learned what it was, did it, and then put solar on the roof. And then my thought was at the time was, now it's going to be obvious to everyone. We no longer have a utility bill. We paid our last utility bill in March of 2011. Um, although we started getting them again because now we have an electric car, so we have to pay electricity for the car. <laughs> we don't have enough solar for that. But uh, to me, it was obvious, and I said at the time that it, it, you know that if people perceive us just as hippies bathing in our pasta water, and that if five years from now we're still the oldest house in America to have achieved net zero energy, we on some level have failed. And on, on some levels, we have failed because we uh, we are at retrofitting homes at the rate we need to, at minimum. All new homes should be net zero energy. I mean, come on, this is, and now, especially in 2022, this is a no-brainer. It's just foolish to build a new home or a new building, new multifamily, new office tower, whatever it is, that is not net zero energy. At minimum, that has legacy fuels uh, at, at great expense to put that infrastructure into the building. Why would you spend money on putting a infrastructure into a building that you know you're going to have to just dismantle within a decade? Um, less now.
1: I would almost call you noble in 2006. <laughs> Obviously, in 2006, no one was talking about this, really. I mean, unless you were in some academic yeah. one, uh, you right. were kind of stating this scientifically people were not commonly having conversations about net zero or electrifying homes or using solar or, you know, think about electric cars. That wasn't even a thing in 2006. Right. Um, so it's, it's I guess it's interesting that you took an obvious issue, which I think a lot of people would admit is an obvious issue. It's a serious issue, uh, you know, global warming and climate change and all of those things. I mean, I'm fully behind it, but would I have made that decision in my personal home to go to the great lengths against the grain, so to speak, um, to, to put that in place. I I think that's really interesting. I think that really kind of serves as the basis of our conversation today and how, how that then ebbed into thrive collaborative and, and ultimately kind of the master plan community now that you're, that you're working on.
0: I mean, thanks for calling it noble. It's a nice word. Um, but you know, to us, it was just necessary. And it was the more beautiful thing to do. Like right away, we started appearing in all kinds of magazines. Uh, we were given preservation awards. Um, the, the house was the kind of house that you, know, you put in magazines um, uh, because it was just beautiful. It was an old house. It was simple. And, uh, and then for us, we, uh, we did all these upgrades before renovating the kitchen. And then once we paid off the solar, we then renovated the kitchen. So, uh, five years prior to that, uh, our good friends and neighbors across the street had bought an SUV for the same price as our solar panels. Uh, five years later, they had a used SUV and we had no energy bills. Uh, and then we could, you know, buy a car, renovate the kitchen, do whatever else we wanted. We no longer had these, had these bills anymore where they, they continued to have bills and then needed a new car. So for us, it's like all of a sudden, okay, so we live in a beautiful home. It's more comfortable than any of our neighbor's homes. Uh, what, what more could you ask for? So to us, this is like, this is like this is the way it should be. This is, the, the intent was to inspire. So we, um, uh, you know, we were in USA Today as one of the best green homes in America. And the Atlantic called it sustainable perfection. And then because of this attention, I started lecturing eventually all over the world um, about the house, about Viridian and County Farm and all the work that we're doing. But at the time that article came out, I shared that with everyone and people would always applaud. And, and I'd say, but it's it's bullshit. There's no such thing as a sustainable house. You can't have a single thing that is sustainable. Nothing, everything in nature relies on underlying networks. And the goal isn't to sustain. It, it is to thrive. It is to be mutually beneficial to other organisms. And this house has already proved that that's the definition of sustainability, um, that, that network that is assembled from the ground up, um, that beauty and that complexity that that evolves, that emerges when you do it.
2: Network is such a great word and talking about sort of nature. And when I look at Viridian, I get that feeling of it is a system, it's a network of of, of how that community works. Yeah. Um, now it's it's sort of identified as a mixed income net zero energy community. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly that means um with and and sort of talk about Viridian at a grander scale?
0: Yeah. So um I, really we look at this house as kind of the you know the first uh the first component of a an emerging uh network of complex neighborhoods and mm-hmm. complex cities and nations. It's fractal in that way, right? and it's, so it's self-similar at every single scale. So, you know, my house here, you know, right now it's, uh, you know, it's in the teens outside. And um, and what you're seeing on, the, on my app on my phone is that there's um, solar coming off of the roof and powering the Tesla power walls and our house. And we're taking zero energy from the grid. Um, a sunny day in January in Ann Arbor, Michigan, okay? arguably one of the Coldest place in the country, and we and we we tried to do more individual houses, and um, my partner Dave Eifrid and I uh, really worked with a, a number of clients to try to make more net zero energy houses, and then we realized that um, we really had to find a way to scale this, and then the opportunity came up to buy land here right near my house in uh, in Ann Arbor in Washtenaw County. Uh, there was an old juvenile detention center, which is a youth prison that, um, uh, you know, housed at-risk youth that uh, they demolished in 2013, and then they put it up for a request for proposal. What should we do with this land in 2016? And they got the typical proposals that you would get from major developers around the state, you know, multi-million dollar proposals. um, uh, One was for senior housing. One was for just luxury housing. One, you know, one was for just, you know, the, the, the cookie cutter neighborhood. Every one of them had uh, retention detention ponds. None of them had renewable energy whatsoever. They all had gas, except for one proposal, and that was ours. And we said, the you know the conventional development model is deeply, deeply flawed. And we've got to do something different. And if we come together as a community and we collaborate on this, and we work with the uh, city and we work with the people in the neighborhood and the and the county um, and our design team, that we can prove out that this is not rocket science. This is something really simple. That what you're seeing at my house, we just replicate that 100 150 times um, for each one of the units, and that's how you do it.
1: Was this your first foray into land development, or or even you know developing a real estate project?
0: Yeah, so for Thrive Collaborative, uh, Veridian County Farm was our very first project. So my partners, uh, you know, myself, David Ifred, and and Joey Jonah. Joey gro- grew up in the uh, in the Jonah family, which is a giant. Uh, family here in Michigan that's involved in, in, in real estate and construction and restaurants, food. Um, and uh, Dave is married to a Jonah. Um, I'm the only non-Jonah in the group. Um, and they've got deep, deep background in development. So with the three of us, with our level of knowledge and experience with these unique skill sets, we're able to come together um, and bring on union studio architects out of Rhode Island who had done a net zero neighborhood before. And, uh, you know, brilliant engineers here at uh, Midwest uh, Engineering and biohabitats um, for the water design of the neighborhood to really treat water as an asset and uh, an insight design landscape architects all working collaboratively to design this um, from the ground up. Um, And then in partnering with Avalon housing, who's an affordable housing developer here in Ann Arbor, and uh, they're doing 50 units of housing. Uh, 30 of them will be set aside for people who are experiencing homelessness so uh, and then in the market rate side of things, we were able to try to figure out how can we hit every different price point. So just like in a forest, complexity and beauty evolves or emerges out of um, out of diversity. Without that diversity, you don't get that emergence. Um, so we've got everything from one hundred and eighty five thousand dollar micro units all the way up to nine hundred and fifty thousand dollar single family luxury homes all in the same neighborhood. And at our very first design meeting, we um, brought everybody together, biologists, (laughs) landscape architects, people from the neighborhood, engineers, architects, all of us at the table. And this was for our proposal, actually. Um, We we weren't just going to sit down and draw some pretty pictures and submit it. Like We wanted something that was really, really workable. And we sat down and I showed the team two pictures side by side. One was a map of Venice, Italy, an ancient map of an old map of Venice, Italy. And another was a schematic of a leaf, an x-ray of a, of a leaf. And their pattern was almost identical. And the reason for that is that they both emerge from the bottom up organically. There's nothing in charge. There was no master planner for the city of Venice. They, couldn't use Google satellite maps to design it. They couldn't bring in giant tractors to move boulders. They couldn't regrade the land in the way we do now. They couldn't bring materials from China and and re-engineer things in Venice. So they were bound by the materials and the form of the land as it existed. And so it emerged from the bottom up because it had to. And it took on those patterns because that was the pattern of the water flow. That was the pattern of the land. That was the pattern of of, of the rivers and the canals and the ocean by it. Uh, And the leaf, the same. Biology forces that pattern to emerge because of that. And so I said, if we do our job right and we start the design from the bottom up, meaning what is this land? Where does the water want to go? What was this land like pre-human development. And then uh, all, and so we began not by placing buildings on a square box, which is what all the other proposals did. We began by looking at the complexity of the soils and the water flow and the park. We're surrounded by 130 acre park. Um, Where's that water coming from? Because the, the, the water in the park is part of the water that's on our site. They're not two separate things just because some lawyer drew a boundary around it. <laughs> Lawyers love boundaries and water doesn't give a shit. (laughs) So so we showed that pattern first. And then what emerged was a street pattern, a path pattern um, that is almost identical. So on that first day in 2006 that we all got together in that room for eight hours, what emerged in that conversation is almost exactly what we ended up with here five years later um, and what we'll be building because the soil and the water... And the ecology of that property is what guided the design.
2: I love this point because I think it's one of the problems that we face today. When you look at sort of, you know, that heavy hand of influence on how we develop now has sort, in my opinion, sort of fractured society in the way that our sub- suburbs are structured. It's all very um inward facing you know you you go to your house and you're inside your house and now we have all the electronics Mm -hmm. to keep you in the house rather than this connected system of of being in community and tied together and when I saw those renderings like it was like this jumping in a time machine and it's like this kind of old western country or something countryside <laughs> and you're sort of navigating throughout this little community and the way that you guys have designed it like uh it's a multi uh multi-unit building but it looks like one large structure and it's all sort of farmhouse yeah. design and it, it just reads as one big building and everybody can come out to these little pockets of uh meeting areas and it was just so yeah. cool to see that that um you guys leaning into community and, and this network. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of the the thought process through that?
0: Yeah. So I went out to Whidbey Island, just North of Seattle out in the Puget sound and, uh, and met with, uh, Ross Chapin, who was the, uh, really the innovator, the really popularized the concept of the pocket neighborhood.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, these, the, and, and he came up with a term that really struck me. And, um, we already gone through our design process, but um, I had some of Ross's books with us at the design table, so certainly inspired by work that he had done. And he had this term layered sociality. We're, we're social beings, no question whether you're shy or an extrovert, whatever you are, you are we're social beings. But every one of us, at different moments throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout our lives in the neighborhood, we, we, we require and demand really different kinds of sociality. So inside of our homes, we design different kinds of spaces. And y'all have talked about this on the show, right? It's like, you know, what do we call this office? Uh, is it a guest room, is it, a, we're, we, you know, for us we're calling them away rooms because they could be guest rooms, they could be TV rooms, they could be just a room to read a book, they could be an office, whatever you want it to be. So you have these different layers. You've got your private space in your in your, in your in your bedrooms. You've got your semi-private spaces in your um, uh, in your uh, family room. You want to hang out with family. Uh, you've got the front porch, which is private to your family, but social because you can say hello to your neighbors as they're passing by. And then there's a space in front of your porch where you have the opportunity to engage deeper with your neighbors. And then just steps away, um, we have the Honey Locust Farm Stop. And what in an area we're calling the Farmstead, which is um, an old barn that we're reclaiming from uh, a right a, a farm right nearby. It's one of the oldest barns in the state of Michigan. We're going to be taking that apart, restoring it, bringing it back up, and possibly we're going to try to do a barn raising with horses and everything. And um, so we've got this, you know, a, a, an area to work on your bikes. We've got this barn. We've got the farmhouse, which is this farm stop grocery store um, called Honey Locust Farm Stop, where seven days a week, it's a it's designed as a farmers market, but as a but it's, it it operates as a grocery store. So farmers, rather than coming and sitting there like they do at a farmers market, can just drop the stuff off, and and the farm stop sells it for them. So it's a grocery store setting with farmers market stuff. So over 200 local farmers um, support. Which, uh, here we have a model called the Argus Farm Stop. There's two of them here in Ann Arbor, and over 200 farmers support that. Uh, one location that's 2,500 square feet. They can bring in their produce any day that they like and they'd um, price it any way they wish. And because of this adjacency, it's really dynamic. So if they're priced too high, they're going to know that right away. If it's priced too low and it's selling out quickly, they can raise their prices a bit and they can talk to their customers about what they want. And so what's happened is farmers have built more hoop houses. They've started growing more food in order to deliver to, to the farm stop. So that is a very, very social area. Uh, and then other places within the community still that you can go away and hide away in a little nook on a, on a hammock or uh, in, in a little, um, we'll, we'll create these places called community moments where you can kind of just hide away from all your neighbors outside under a honey locust tree and, and read a book or um, get together with other people and do yoga. So at every level, again, just like the forested ecosystem, you have these fractal relationships or it's self-similar at every scale. So, in the private level, you have private home, family space, semi-public space, and then out in the community, that repeats that pattern repeats itself: private space, semi-public space, and then, and then public space at the at the farm stop. So it's it's pretty neat. I love that term, layered sociality.
2: So, where are you guys at in the process? Um, I know you broke ground recently. Great. Uh, no, we're about to break ground. Um, we were
0: hoping to break ground in December. Uh, a, a number of things tied that up, engineering permits and our financing and funky things with uh, Michigan condominium law and title insurance, all these crazy things like everything. Uh, yeah. Development in general is, is not an easy thing. And then when you uh, add to it all these other complexities like different levels of income inside of a community, we segregate communities by income always mm-hmm. and and everyone thinks that we segregate it by the rich and the poor but we actually stratify it at every single level a conventional developer will build a neighborhood or an apartment building with all one price point generally in there mm. they might toss in one or two luxury apartments you know penthouses in a in a uh, an apartment but you know typically a neighborhood's got $300,000 homes in it and another neighborhood will have $600,000 homes in it, and then there's another place we call affordable housing, but it's rarely ever integrated into one place. So when you do something really dynamic and, um, again, designed from the bottom up with water, yeah. every little legal issue that comes in gets complicated. Every easement, every every uh, every limited common element, all these other things becomes very, very complicated when you start dealing with solar and cross easements and different ownership and so on. So we, we always talk about the importance of designing the legal fictions underneath the design. So we design above the legal fictions, not below them. And typically yeah. everyone else just buries themselves under the legal fictions. It's like, what is politically feasible? What is legal? And then they just build to that. Yeah. You take the path of least resistance. And what we did instead was um, we do what uh, uh, Saul Griffith says is ask the question, not what is politically feasible but what is technically necessary and when you do that you get a much better looking neighborhood too
2: let's take a break to share a little bit more about our sponsors all right for our california listeners this is for you CTO Landscape Architecture in Anaheim, California, is a young, ambitious, fast-growing firm providing landscape architecture planning and design services to the AEC industry, real estate developers, and public agencies alike. CTO's expertise with designing California native landscapes and water efficiency calculations makes permitting a smooth, painless process. The CTO team is continuously revising and improving workflows to better meet project milestones while providing the flexibility to work within client schedules. Their work from anywhere, anytime office schedule allows for agility when it comes to delivering client work and balancing personal time and life events. Learn more at ctola.com, that's S-I-T-I-O-L-A dot com, or you can call or text to 657-217-6169 to see how CTO can help with your latest development project. Now I mentioned CTO is a young ambitious team. They have deep expertise, but founded as a company in 2019, they're not set in sort of old ways. So they're quick to adapt new tools to fit with our ever-changing environment, exploring new forms of design, production, and communication. And working with tools like LandFX, messaging apps, video conferencing, and scalable networking, all to help produce better client work as they grow. So give Pablo at CTO a call to see how they can help you on your next project. And now let's get back to the conversation. In this process, would, would you say that that has been sort of the biggest complexity is dealing with all of the the legal, legal ramifications of doing development or is it something else um, in trying to make this this type of community work?
0: I, I think it, it's, it's a combination of, of everything that is the inertia of the conventional development model, right? We have the conventional framework for code, just building code, um, for fire code, uh, the conventional framework for how we fund affordable housing. For how we fund market rate housing, the mortgage process, the com- in the comparables uh, years ago, when, when I, we went to refinance our house after we put solar up, they gave us zero value for the solar at the time because they didn't have a comparable for that, which is nonsense. So, so, so everything you do, um, uh, you know, the path of least resistance is the path that has already been done. But if you're trying to change things, you've got to recreate things sometimes. And that's that's where it gets complicated. But what makes it simpler is the necessity of doing this in an integrated way, the integrated design team, and having everybody as part of that. And bringing their expertise to those roles, but not coming to the table and forcing their ideas based on their expertise, because you, you get better ideas when everyone steps away from their, those roles. And uh, I may not know as much about engineering, but I know enough to ask questions about how I behave as a human being on a street. And now an engineer can tell me that's not physically possible, that the laws of physics violate that. Yeah. But then we can design around that notion of what does that pedestrian or that cyclist want to do in that space? Um, so it becomes a very different way of thinking about it, and that's why um, we've had children at our design table. We had, uh, you know, we had one of our design charrettes where we had uh, the age range was from eleven to seventy five. So uh, you you really that that kind of diversity and people coming to it with their own personal experience really changes the way the design happens at the table.
2: Now you mentioned um, sort of approaching this whole thing with nature in mind and, and this natural network. Were there any other techniques or thought processes that informed the design of this community and, uh, and with that, what sort of did and did not work with, with those, uh, with that approach?
0: We started the process really going through the framework of the living community challenge, which is really just the living building challenge at scale, which is based on seven performance areas. Uh, the three primary ones are uh, net zero energy, being able to harvest all your energy on site, uh, net zero water, net positive water, uh, being able to harvest all your water on site and treat all your waste and in um, materials. And then other preconditions to those things, which are the other remaining petals, are things like um, equity, uh, beauty, inspiration. Um, all of these things play into um, into these other elements. But Really, that guiding principle goes back to what I talked about earlier with the, the, the leaf pattern and the, um, the map of Venice, Italy, it is the metaphor of the tree or a flower. Trees emerge from the bottom up. Um, they are rooted in place. They can't go across the street or, uh, for, for more water. They can't go to another town to get energy and bring it to them they have to be able to account for all of their energy on site. They have to account for all their water on site and they don't create waste. Instead, it it relies on being part of a mutually beneficial network. So it's waste becomes a benefit for another organism. Uh, So to a tree, this mycelial network can actually then help trees communicate with their offspring and uh, transfer nutrients and water and all of these other things through other organisms. Buildings are the same way um, and they need to be scaled the same way. There's a limit to how tall a tree can grow because you can't violate the laws of physics. You can violate the laws of humans. You can violate code. You cannot pass your inspection for code, but if a tree violates it, it dies and it doesn't evolve. And the same thing is really happening with our cities. We're really starting to realize the the the, the peak of how tall can we make buildings? How how large can we make them? How far away can we get our energy and our materials for those buildings? And then what is it like for the people who inhabit those buildings or walk past those buildings? Do they have access to nature? Do they still, are they completely shaded from the sun by these uh, Blade Runner cities um, with these skyscrapers? Um, but then balancing that and can we get the density that we need without skyscrapers? And mathematically, they're proving that absolutely, yes, you can get that kind of density. But again, like using these metaphors and looking to biology and biomimicry, you ask first, how does nature do it? <laughs> right? mm-hmm. does, does, does nature make linear systems? And the answer is no, um, because they become fracture critical. And if a part, meaning part fails, the whole system fails. Well, it, it wouldn't evolve. It wouldn't, you know, 3.8 million years of evolution has answered some really good questions for us. And we ought to pay attention to those. And so, uh, you know, if we, yes, we can engineer a building Uh, Almost anywhere, over water, over a floodplain, Uh, uh, we can make it super tall, we can bring energy to it, we can bring water to it, we can take the waste away from it, but it is inherently by definition unsustainable because it relies on external inputs. And throughout the evolution of everything in the physical and biological world, known to humans right now... (laughs) Uh, those things have never survived. On if they are if they are centralized and linear and have this fractal critical uh, fracture critical nature to them, meaning that if one part breaks, it's catastrophic. Whereas nature, if a part fails, it fails gracefully um, because that's okay. Failure is actually necessary as part of this emergence, as part of this evolution, to do something better the next time. So you shouldn't be afraid of failure. But it's the failure not taking down the entire network that is essential. And so really kind of using those design principles from the ground up uh, is really where we start. More biologists at the design table. We need them.
1: <laughs> so I have a, a maybe just a big question, which is you know, thinking through the lens of my land acquisition, private market rate, developer and home builder um in california how do you finance a project like this because i think (laughs) there's there's one it's the social aspect which i'm all on board on right like that obviously this is the right thing to do but there's also the how do you how do you fund it how do you make money how do you get you know capital to you know believe in in this type of Project. I mean, just economically speaking, you've got a, a tremendous amount of of um, amenities. You've got all these amenities, right? And all those amenities cost money. Right. 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 Um, at some point, you don't have enough revenue to generate the cost of the amenities. So yeah. How do you get this all to kind of pencil?
0: So um, yeah, bake sale. Right. You just uh, sell cookies. Um, that's the way to do it. <laughs> uh, uh, no, it, that that is the, you know the, the biggest challenge. Um, the benefit of Veridian at County Farm. And making this a model for other places was that it's an extraordinary piece of real estate, right? We we had the opportunity to build inside of a 130 acre park near the University of Michigan in downtown Ann Arbor, across the street from a Whole Foods, just across the park is Trader Joe's, Lululemon on the other side, right there, all walking distance. So you see you know, million dollar homes just in the north. So the the real estate for this is an incredible piece of property. So if you're going to do something that's different. Prove it out where you you know you're going to be able to sell everything, but we use that as leverage to do things differently. So um, right away, you know, knowing that the financial part of uh, sustainable development is um, is in need of uh, uh, repair, just like so much is in conventional development, uh, we funded uh, you know a bit of it ourselves. We we invested our own developer's fee. We uh, started a crowd fund initially. And even though that was for a small amount of money, it was, and we knew it would be for a small amount of money, we wanted to see like what, what, what does it mean if we can bring in people from the community and allow them to invest in a community that is being built in their own neighborhood. So we went from a property that was up for, you know a publicly owned property that was a request for a proposal where the neighbors were going just totally nuts with signs in their yards, save the land, protesting any development here, Right. It's like make expand the park. Don't put in more development. By the time we submitted our proposal, we had a thousand signatures from people in Washtenaw County and the surrounding neighborhoods supporting the project because it wasn't development that they opposed. It was crappy development that they they opposed Um, when we showed them what they were doing, what we were doing. um, They were supportive of that. So giving them the opportunity to become stakeholders in it, financial stakeholders in it for as little as five hundred dollars. So in that crowdfund, we it was it was between you know five hundred to fifty thousand dollars people invested, and that really got us through some of the early engineering phases and things like that. And then you really ask the question: What if every developer had to do that? What if you took a certain percentage of your funds and said you have to get it from the people who live in the neighborhood? I think very different things would be built. Because the way it is now, you have blind investors coming from thousands of miles away who've never visited the community in where they're investing. Most of the investors don't even know that the project exists. They're in some uh, real estate investment trust um, or some other mechanism that they don't know or care about what's happening in the neighborhood. So if people are displaced, if the social network is degraded, if the ecology of the area is degraded, they have no stake in that neighborhood and they don't care. So we asked the question, what if we do that and bring that in? So we ended up not with just um, supporters but real stakeholders in the process. So we ended up with over hundred people um, invested in the project. And from that process, um, we also got our majority investor. So our majority investor um, was able to come in, you know help with the land price, purchase price um, and um, uh, and a substantial amount of the other early in- investment process. Uh so Mitch and Lori Hall they were in the New York Times so I can say their name publicly now. Um they uh, they were one of our, you know, they were a major early investor and they're going to be they're buying house at Viridian. They're going to live at Viridian. And about 10 other investors out of that 100 are also going to be living at Viridian. You can't get a better stake hold in a, in a neighborhood than wanting to live there and invest your own money into it. And then beyond that, then you look back it's like, all right, what are the conventional mechanisms of financing? Now, can we just go to a bank and do this through the conventional mechanisms? And we could have done that. And that money would have actually been very cheap at this time. But it would be really, really complicated for us. And any barriers that we came across, banks would have run as quickly as possible as soon as they saw any kind of hurdle that we would have had to go overcome. So we... We ended up approaching different um, family funds, and we ended up with uh, an investment capital firm, an equity fund, uh, that is for major families and, uh, and some other minor investors, that their mission is to uh, invest in ESG, environment and social governance and sustainable development. And in the end, we were really scared of like... Everyone was saying, this is going to be so easy for you to fund. I mean, look at this piece of real estate, right? It's so inspiring. And you know, up until that last minute, we're like, but it's not funded. (laughs) And then in the end, we ended up having two different funds competing to fund us because they were so inspired by what we were doing and saying, this checks all of our boxes. We want to be doing more of these kind of projects. And profit wasn't their motivating goal. It was getting Veridian built and making more of them, and so they they became real partners in this process. And every step of the way, they work with us. If there's a if there's a hurdle to overcome, they work with us to overcome that hurdle. And um, it's pretty darn exciting to see what's happening in the world of finance and sustainable development now. Uh, the challenge is there's none of projects there for them to fund.
1: Matt, how many how many units do you have?
0: It's 160 units throughout Viridian, two development partners. Avalon Housing is doing 50 affordable housing units. Um, Again, 30 of those for people who experience homelessness. And then Thrive Collaborative, our company, is developing the remaining two-thirds of the property. Uh, Those are market rate everywhere, and those are 110 units, a mix of single-family housing, uh, terrace homes or townhomes, uh, multifamily uh, homes and uh, and the micro units, and then a mixed use building with a farmhouse grocery store with uh, uh, we call the the farmhouse flats, which are micro units, small the smallest three hundred and fifty square foot units um, in, in those buildings.
1: The the retail or the commercial pieces will you be seeking out national credit tenants, or is that intended to be more of a mom and operation or how does that work? No,
0: that'll be entirely local. So that space will be the, 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 uh, the honey locust farm stop, um, which again is that farm shop grocery store that I talked about earlier, where we'll have, uh, you know, completely local farms, meats, dairy, pasta, you name it. Um, Even ginger. Uh, Farmers here in Michigan are now growing ginger in hoop houses. Uh, So you can get extraordinary local products, everything you could possibly need for a chef's kitchen. In, in three thousand square feet of space, and we'll have a we're hoping to have a weekly farmers market there as well. So um, uh, so one day a week there'll also be a farmers market in addition to the seven day a week farm stop there.
1: I think we could do a whole nother episode on ESG and that trend um, and the, the funding that is behind there and the fact that there aren't there aren't enough projects I think for those ESG funds to chase after yep. yet. Yes. And uh, your your project is obviously a great example. Um, if we can find a way to duplicate it, if if kind of the more entrepreneurial private developers can can really familiarize themselves and get familiar with kind of what you're doing, I think that sets us up as a as a good example for how to then capture some of that money that actually is out there.
0: Yeah, and and for us, uh, and what we've been telling these funds is that Veridian doesn't go far enough. Right, we we had to work within the conventional framework to make this work, but if we're willing, if we can find willing municipal partners that are able to really look for spaces and code to do the things that are technically necessary, uh, really take water to its logical conclusion, which is, you know, no longer having these centralized sewer treatments and centralized water treatment plants. When we have the technology now, my own home uh, is is net. Uh, nets our energy, but we also harvest our own rainwater on site. We worked with uh, Blue Lab at the University of Michigan to design a system using off the shelf technology uh, where my rooftop can harvest all of our own rainwater and put it into 5,000 gallon uh, cisterns in the yard, buried underground, pre filter that water, run it through filters um, uh, down to five microns, and then UV light at the end. We're getting potable drinking water from our rainwater on site as much as we need, but code doesn't classify that as potable water, even though it is scientifically potable. And we test our water against the city water that comes into our house. We have both that come into our house. And every single time, the treated rainwater is higher quality than the city. And the city often has uh, detectable levels of lead, calcium, manganese, all kinds of other minerals and and, and things in there that are both good and bad or, um, or benign. And the rainwater is the highest source water you could possibly do. Uh, and then waste. Uh, buildings across the world have now proven that um, waste can be managed on site at the building level. The Bullet Center in Seattle, the Phipps Conservatory in, uh, in, in Pittsburgh, um, and many, many other Living Building Challenge buildings around the world have all proven that uh, you can take the, 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 what we call black water, the waste that's coming from bathrooms, and do nutrient recovery. And, and they can leave the building as nutrients rather than as toxic waste. And disconnect from the sewer pipes. Uh, so they're not sending a waste material that is useless and toxic to a municipality, but it's coming off as, as, as nutrients. And again, this is not hippy-dippy, you know, bathing in your pasta water stuff. This is high-level engineering, high-level science, high-level biology, but combining all of those systems. So you've got biologically engineered systems and same thing with energy, right? We, we, we don't need to take our energy from faraway places. We need to figure out ways to make localized microgrids that evolve from the, the site of use outward, not opposite. So we need to be designing from Google Street View rather than from Google Satellite Map. But we have the benefit of, of Google Satellite Map to seeing what that complex network looks like when we're done. So we should use both. Um, and for the first time in human history, uh, an evolutionary history of any kind, we have the ability to do that. And with um, uh, uh, with the new design tools we have, the future looks pretty darn extraordinary.
2: So to Michelle's point about the ESG funds, uh, I think now that your project is out there and it's getting a lot of traction and coverage, I think there will be more people pursuing this type of project in those ESG funds. Uh, what's one thing you would advise for someone that's going to take on this type of project and development? Um, maybe not one thing, but a general uh, advice that you would give to to another developer that's considering pursuing something like this. I mean,
0: who the hell am I to give advice? <laughs> um, uh, it's, yeah, it's always the hardest question. But honestly, you know, years ago, we had this question about, um, you know, how do you build a net zero home? Right. Just our net zero building and their books about it and everything else. And I will tell you the, the the one thing that net zero energy or living building challenge or any kind of sustainable development have in common for success is number one, knowing unequivocally, undoubtedly that it is absolutely possible. I mean, it already exists, so it must be possible. Right. Yeah. So it's possible. So your entire team must know it's possible. Step one. And number two, you have to have a team that is unwavering in its commitment to that goal of the possible. So again, they're not worried about what is legally possible or politically possible. They're looking at what is technically necessary, um, and knowing that it's already been done proves that it's possible. And then really integrating that team, um, and that team must be you know diverse and integrated. So letting the team know one, it's possible. Two. You have to have an unwavering commitment to get to that goal, and three, that team has to be diverse. Those are the three things. There have been net zero energy buildings, Living Building Challenge buildings, uh, increasingly some, you know, more regenerative and resta- sustainable development neighborhoods around the world. But every single one of them, they're all in different climate zones. They're all built differently. They have different building techniques. So you can't say that the that, 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 that passive house is this or, or that um, this much insulation or this kind of heat pump is, is how you do it. Um, the engineering tools are, are secondary. But what is absolutely necessary is that integrated design team that knows it's possible and commits to it.
2: Thank you so much, Matt. Um, Really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'm going to be following along with Viridian for a long time as you guys continue to develop and and build onto this project. How can people follow along with you with Thrive uh, Collaborative or Viridian?
0: Yeah, so I'm I'm on Twitter uh, and um, LinkedIn and um, Instagram. I don't know where else I am. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and uh, But you can, you can find us on uh, uh, a community, and that's V-E-R-I-D-I-A-N.community uh, is the website. And there's a gorgeous video that you can watch there. Uh, and then thrive-collaborative.com is our company website where you can see some of the other projects that are going to be coming into the pipeline.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you to Michelle for joining me. And thank you to the listeners for listening. We'll talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you again to our sponsor, CTO Landscape Architecture. To learn more about how they can help you with your latest project, visit ctola.com. That's S I T I O L A dot com. Or you can call or text at 657 217 217 six one six nine thanks again for listening spaces is part of the gable media network you can check out similar content at gablemedia.com that's g-a-b-l media.com if you enjoy our show you can support us in three simple ways for free you can leave us a rating and review on apple podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to tell a friend, and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon.
3: Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, Get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry. With Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates, we share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International shaping the future of digital transformation in the design construction and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK, the three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days, very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.